Since I became a parent, I've been reading a lot of fairy tales. They all seem to go like this. Handsome prince rescues beautiful princess, and they all live happily ever after. It's a tale as old as time, or at least as old as Hans Christian Andersen via the Disney Corporation. But life is not that simple, even, and perhaps especially, for anyone trying to date while wearing a crown. In his new book, Daniel Smith looks back at the love letters of kings and queens, and what we see is that love is usually hard to find, hard to keep, and that loyalty and respect are actually some of the most beautiful and enduring qualities of any relationship. Today's guest is Daniel Smith, author of Love Letters of Kings and Queens. This edition of Nonfic Pod with Burn. That's me. And Cod. I'm here. Hello. Hello. So what do you reckon to fairy tales? Cod, big fan, not a big fan? I don't know. They're so neat, aren't they? So, a lot of them. It's so neat and they're quite I quite like the gory ones, like the original <laughs> fairy tales with the old feet being chopped off, etc. Grandmothers being eaten. You know, that's mm-hmm. my But then I'm not so keen on the general prince rise to the rescue and actually damsel in distress, that kind of jazz. No, not interested. The the mysticism and the magic I do like. What about you? Yeah, since having to read some of these things to, to my daughter, who is about to turn five, um, yeah, the gender essentialism of most of them is nauseating. And I, I, I try to avoid them as much as I can. Um, but the thing that really gets to me, especially after 16 years of marriage, is the phrase, and they lived happily ever after. I was like, what a fucking cop out. <laughs> this idea that marriage, sorry, a wedding, is the end of all of your travails and marriage from that point on is just like yeah, plain sailing actually, uh, when actually marriage is like any relationship damned hard work um, but where do you fall down on love letters do you do you like a good gushy i love you my sweetie bab bab or are you more of a you know get to the point well, firstly, no one's ever called me Sweetie Bab Bab, and I feel like I've really missed no. out. Um, I love a love letter. Oh, well, in this episode, we get we get to hear some very, very gludgesome uh, terms of endearment. So, oh. yeah, Sweetie Bab Bab is nothing. <gasps> Sweetie Bab Bab. Um, yeah. Uh, so reading this book, uh, Love Letters of Kings and Queens, and looking at the love letters from Edward to Wallace Simpson... Oh, man, there are some nauseating terms of endearment, particularly between um, Edward and Wallace Simpson or from Edward to Wallace Simpson. They they did make me want to gnaw my own feet off. Um, one of the things I noticed is that, yeah, even when you wear a crown or perhaps especially when you wear a crown, relationships are hard work. Yeah, <laughs> mm. it does make me wonder you, you talking about that line and they all lived happily ever after. How? many people have been skewed by that how many relationships have never lived up to the fairy tales that we heard as kids the book we've got this week is love letters of kings and queens and some of those love letters do show that pandemic is nothing compared to your loved one being off you know fighting wars in russia or trying to sire an heir or something (laughs) so i kind of feel like trying to navigate homeschooling in a pandemic is pretty small fry compared to what some of these couples have been to 
when you tell those fairy tales to your youngest, do you ad lib a bit at the end? <laughs> they all lived happily ever after, except they didn't because then the in-laws arrived. Oh, yes. There's always that, isn't there? Actually, my in-laws are wonderful. My husband's in-laws are terrible. I tend to ad lib during the story as well. And it's like, and then he leant over the sleeping princess and stole a kiss. And that is sexual assault. Good. Consent is important, yo. This is gross. (laughs) (laughs) And then the wicked stepmother was asking who was the fairest in the land, because as women, we're taught to value ourselves depending on our desirability and our appearance. And we'll be having none of that. So yeah, I get a little right on, which means it's it's worked brilliantly because it means my daughter will not let me read her those sorts of post-Disney version fairy tales. So yeah, the original ones, the gory ones, she doesn't like because they're gory as fuck um but the disney ones she doesn't like because mummy gets a little so she gets her feminism on my favorite book to read to her actually is arabella mortimer uh which has a delightful young girl and her pet raven and nobody's rescuing anybody great (laughs) so yeah i think at the moment she would much rather be arabella or possibly mortimer than a princess um but i'm trying to remember if i went through a wanting to be a princess phase do you remember having one of those I was wondering that actually while you were speaking and trying to remember it. And I think possibly I did want to be a princess, but my mum couldn't afford the Disney themed like Princess Jasmine outfits or whatever. She was the princess that I most wanted to be, obviously, because she had the flying carpet, man. Right. No, I think I mostly wanted to be a farmer. Bit different. Right. Yeah, I wanted to be a nun for a while because I I heard that they get to uh, basically do a lot of reading. Nobody told me about the the slightly limited range of things you're meant to read if you're a nun. Uh, Then after that, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Where did Um, that come from? Yeah, I just I saw Top Gun when I was very young, probably too young to have seen it. I just wanted to go very, very fast, very, very high up. Yeah, I think in terms of literary characters, I quite fancy being Heidi. I wanted a goat and to live that kind of rural life which is bizarre because I grew up in Yorkshire and I actually legitimately hated it because you know there are no buses and I was miles away from anywhere but for some reason Heidi made it look good Our guest on this episode, Daniel Smith, has written over 30 non-fiction books including the hugely successful How to Think Like series His book, The Peer and the Gangster, was described by The Observer as revelatory and hilarious, uh, while The Ardlement Mystery is an enthralling real-life murder mystery, according to the Daily Mail. His next book, The Love Letters of Kings and Queens, is out in February. Welcome, Daniel. Hello. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed, I got a sort of voyeuristic thrill out of reading The Love Letters of Kings and Queens. And one of the things that really struck me was this consistent theme of I suck, but you're divine uh, that runs through so many of these love letters. Uh, Were you surprised at all that even kings, queens and emperors are occasionally a little insecure when wooing? Yeah, I guess so. Up to a certain point. But then some of them you just think, ah, these are people just pulling their best moves. So the the Henry VIII letters you think which wife do you have to be before you start wondering if he really means all this stuff that he's saying to you (laughs) so you have those kind of ones but then yeah I was really struck by for instance the Charles the first letters written at a time of civil war and utter crisis for the monarchy and you still get this you get a real insight into the real life relationship and and the the marriage between Charles the first and Henrietta Maria wasn't always enormously happy there was an underlying affection and respect there that comes out in those letters and as the civil war progressed 
best you could see the power balance sort of changing between the two of them so that Henrietta um, almost became the, the guiding hand really and he and was instructing Charles as to what he should be doing so I, I found those kind of letters really interesting and when you see these figures that you know from history in quite a different light and then you have people like Edward VIII and maybe those are, are some of the most romantic letters in other respects they're some of the most cloying as well you use sort of baby talk and nicknames and and they can be slightly cringy but then we we have this vision of of Edward and Wallace but he did give everything up for her Mm -hmm. so actually you know behind all that you've got again a man who was albeit briefly king but you know who who also was this highly emotional character that utterly comes out on the page of pages of his love letters yeah it does doesn't it he's utterly besotted with Wallace Mm. And probably more than she was with him as well. I think the tone of some several of her letters, while she absolutely gives him get-out clauses all the time, and, and you sort of mm-hmm. suspect that she wouldn't have minded too much if he'd taken one or two of those get-out clauses along the way. <laughs> but no, you know, he just kept on going in there full throttle. Quite what she made of it all is, is less clear, perhaps, I think, still. I, that's one of the interesting things about where we have both sides of the correspondence, um, one of the ones that mm. really struck me, we've got Rosie Wilby on this season talking about the breakup monologues and the notion of conscious uncoupling, yes. uh, which is thought to have originated with Gwyneth Paltrow, but actually pre-existed them. Um, but Prince George's first letter, the, the breakup letter, is, is quite a conscious uncoupling letter. It's not our fault. We don't get along. Why not live apart and be happy? Yeah. But then when you see Caroline's letter, she's not exactly on the same page first of all do you find yourself ever rooting for one partner over the other are there a few where that you're sort of thinking oh that one's a bad egg definitely definitely i mean i think george uh, prince george is one of those ones later george the fourth you know he he was a cad and a bounder and, and that's pretty clear you know all the way through so yes I, I think it's difficult not to pick a side there as it is with henry the eighth as well when when you know how the story is going to end each time it's difficult not to think i've got your card marked mate so um <laughs> but yeah you know in other but other ones i think it's less clear i mean a lot of these the mm. relationships that documented in the book it's they open a window onto the complexities of the relationships and very often it's women with very little choice in what's happening to them in in terms of marital decisions but also it's men quite often being awful but themselves mm. not having a huge amount of the the ability to dictate their own fates. You know, they're, they're so born to duty that's expected of them and utterly defines their lives as well. So I think often you get to the end of whichever chapter with whichever coupling. And, and I kind of feel sorry for both parties very often. You think, yeah, nobody's really come out of this very happily. And of course, it's from an age and strata of society, which the, these were not love marriages. And certainly George and Caroline, I don't think they'd met until about three days before the marriage. Um, he'd already had an unofficial marriage, uh, which was never publicly acknowledged. I mean, it, it was not a great start to a relationship. And then Caroline's in the situation where really her choice is to stay in the marriage and get as good a life out of it as she can create. And and she just comes up against this force of George, who's beyond caring very shortly after the wedding, what happens to her. And it's just horrible, really. It's, it's horrible to read, but fascinating as well. As you say, that idea of duty and expected roles, and particularly sort of quite narrow roles for women, but also the way that uh, those of us who are commoners never have to worry mm. about things like begetting an heir. So you talk about Napoleon. Napoleon and Josephine and the fact that 
yeah, they had to split up so that Napoleon could could beget an heir. When you're reading that, the tearing between love and duty, uh, is there anyone you particularly admire in the book for having either succumbed to duty or stepped up for duty? Or you, do you quite like the rebels who go, forget duty, I'm going to run off with this American divorcee? Looking at it from our moment in history where we basically believe in love marriages, it's difficult to look at any of these marriages where whoever it might be is engaged to their partner at the age of seven or something like that and you know they meet 12 hours before the wedding and it's very difficult to ever think oh what a marvelous setup that is um i quite like the rebels like i said i I think edward the eighth is a very divisive figure and he in many ways he's he's very unappealing but within the fairly narrow confines of whether you go for your duty or for love I, i think there's something at least intriguing and kind of appealing that the story played out as it did there so i quite like that as a story um i think that's probably where i am with it more i like the stories rather than necessarily mm. massively respecting the characters within them and yeah and then you have you know figures like napoleon and, and josephine it, it's a tragedy isn't it I, mm. I don't think i admire napoleon that he gave up his one true great love um so that he could get a male heir i don't think that <laughs> i think what a guy for doing that but you know i you have complete sympathy with the situation and you see how difficult it must be for both of them and i think napoleon and josephine are quite intriguing as well because that's one of the correspondences where there's an awful lot from the the male figure and not a lot from the female figure and i think there's been quite a lot of suggestion over the years that again they definitely loved each other but napoleon might well have loved her more than she loved him and you know very often his letters he absolutely lays his soul bare for her and then the next letter that he writes sort of starts with something along the lines of oh no, I sent you that one three weeks ago and I've not heard anything back from you yet. Mm-hmm. And you, you kind of have some interesting power balances going on there as well with some of these figures that you do think were well, theirs was a love match. And I think theirs was, but, you know, they both had a lot of affairs very shortly after they were married. You know, they, they didn't stay faithful for very long. And then, you know, they, they come to the conclusion that, well, there's no male heir on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So we'll... we'll um, knock it on the head for now it's it's a difficult one isn't it? <laughs> who who do you admire in those situations i don't know i i did like as well the, the fact that as you mentioned most of those letters most of what we know about napoleon's relationship with josephina from napoleon's letters and there is that sense in in his letters that occasionally she's slightly ghosting him yeah definitely yeah what do you do when you have one half is very clearly written you've already alluded to the fact that it's never safe to conjecture the entire state of the relationship based on just what one person is writing i was just gonna say i think you just have to read them bearing that in mind that we are inevitably getting only part of a story even when there's copious correspondence on both sides you know it's it's an insight and it's to be treated as an insight rather than chapter and verse you never know the state of somebody else's relationship do you so you can only work from the evidence you've got what we're able to do in a quite sort of joyful and, and fun way with these i think but not to think that we know the full picture all the time and it is a lot of fun you mentioned earlier the fact that while these are love letters they're not always necessarily entirely ardent there is a lot of and here's this other stuff going on what all mm. to do how's that feel when you basically look back through history and see these phenomenal partnerships yeah i find those in some ways the most interesting because like i said i think the charles the first uh letters are are really fascinating just because you know what is going on in quite a lot of detail in terms of historical political background and 
and to see these two people who ultimately come across as, albeit highly powered and entitled people, but, you know, essentially normal, ordinary people with normal, ordinary feelings of fear and uncertainty and affection and all of those kind of things. I think it comes across very clearly in their relationship. So I found that those particularly interesting. I also found the, the Victoria and Albert ones great from that point of view as well. In some ways, they're hilarious to, to begin with they're hilarious you have queen victoria writing to to her favorite uncle um leopold king of belgium basically saying i you know i don't want to get married and you're sending your nephew um albert uh, over and i'll see him but i'm making no guarantees and all this kind of stuff and then seemingly about five minutes after she's seen albert she's just utterly besotted and it's when can we get married sort of thing you know i think i think she proposed to him in about about five days after they met. And I think that's great that she was the one that did the pose. It's fantastic. And then it's not long before you get this other these other aspects that come in where Albert is trying to manoeuvre so that he can have, uh, he can nominate his own staff and define what his role's going to be. And Victoria writing these slightly testy letters back, basically saying, Albert, you've not understood at all and you're going to have to play by my rules, our British rules. And so that's quite interesting to see. And I read an article recently actually about them and Albert really struggled for a long time to define what his role was going to be and and he in the end he accepted he was going to play second fiddle to Victoria in public life but there seems to have been this then within their private life he was very much into keeping her in her place domestically and he would fire members of her staff and dictate how domestic life should be run and um, she seemingly was prone to tantrums that he would extremely frustrate him and he would tell her off for them and apparently he used to then give her certificates of improvement oh. when she <laughs> apologised <laughs> and said she wouldn't do it again so you know there's the, <laughs> the awful insight into their domestic life yeah I, I actually found that out after I'd edited this book and I thought wow that's very interesting those letters are very interesting because there's this real difference between clearly Victoria recognises she is a public figure and a private individual and obviously a source of some friction for the two of them going back to your your question yeah I I love those ones which really reveal not necessarily the the grand passions all the time but sometimes more the mundaneness of married life even for these people I'm wondering about two centuries hence, when historians have will they have access to the uh, the love WhatsApp messages or the the courting TikToks of kings yeah. and queens? Are we are we doomed to lose these sorts of human insights into ephemera? I, I we are really, sadly, in terms of. In terms of the sort of book that I've I've just been editing, yeah, it's difficult to imagine that there's going to be a similar volume of material that makes it through the centuries. You know, you have that sense of being an incredibly well-documented age, but perhaps that's to the detriment of history um, in that we're becoming so well-documented that there's piles of digital Mm -hmm. information and quite how... We're going to be able to get through those and find find the needles in the haystacks of it all. Um, I don't know. I think it, I think we probably are going to lack some of this sort of material in times to come. And I think that's really sad if that is the case. I hope it isn't. I hope it. Well, is. I'm really glad that you have had access to this incredible body of literature um, and of of correspondence. And I have to say, anyone who has been enjoying Bridgerton should really get hold of a copy of this book. This is the trials, the strifes, the the triumphs the mundanity 
all yeah. of it is entirely glorious. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much to Daniel. You can find Daniel Smith at danielsmithbooks.co.uk and as Smith underscore writer on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us on Nonfic Pod, Daniel. Thank you very much. What are you reading other than, of course, the ardent love letters that have been sent to you? <laughs> well, I, yeah, the one love letter that my mum sent me when I was six years old. Oh, it was blank. No, um, what have I been reading? I've been reading Rosie Wilby, Breakup oh, Monologues. Well, yeah, this is brilliant from the, oh, my darling, I love you. Please, please love me too, my little snookums to fuck you, it's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's good that it's over. And I'm glad. So that's quite, that's quite exciting. For, for those of you listening who are not already aware of our schedule, we have Rosie Wilby as one of our interviewees in a few weeks' time. So, yes, I'm plunging headfirst into the world of broken relationships yeah. and it's juicy <laughs> and it's it's quite it's it is nice to read about the not happily ever afters makes you feel a bit less um, like a loser, methinks. Yeah, I think sometimes a, a good breakup can be better than a lousy Sorry, relationship. Sometimes all the time, Emma. All the time. A breakup is better than a lousy relationship. OK, this no, this yeah. is true all the time a good break yes is better. you're yes. right you're right anyway what about you um, lady what have you yeah. been reading and well yeah I mean I'm jumping on Rosie's podcast and listening to the heck out of that she she actually has a podcast called the breakup monologues which I am catching up with but I've got some really good reads coming up for the series um I've just been sent a copy of aftershocks by Nadia Owosu <gasps> and have also been sent uh, The Disordered Cosmos by Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein and I cannot wait mm. to dive in. You can really help us by rating, reviewing and sharing non-fic pod. Every little helps to build our audience, and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. And if you want to help even more, you can back us on Patreon. Search for Patreon Non-Fic Pod or see the link in our show notes. If you're already backing us, then thank you. Listen for your name in the credits. And if you're backing us at Silver Nib level or above, then please stand by for the extended cut of this episode and the shit I wish I'd known, in which this week's guest will tell you more about their writing and publishing experiences. Nonfic Pod is brought to you by Beatrice Bazell, Emma Byrne, Georgie Cod, and Mike Wire. Patreon supporters are Claire and Alexander, David Corney, Alessandra Coyne, Nicola Myrams, and Mike Wire. Copious penis colada. <laughs> What's the plural of pina colada? I like penis colada. I have no idea. Is it like Attorney's General? Or... Penis colada. Penis... It's definitely penis colada. <laughs> yeah.
really help us by rating, reviewing and sharing Nonfic Pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. <laughs>